if I may, President, with your permission, just in my own language, say, Translating immediately, may I just say, President, I took the opportunity of saying in our own language, the Irish language, which is the language spoken in the area where the great tragedy has taken place and which is represented in Parliament, among other, by, by, by Thomas Pender. I deeply appreciate as President of Ireland all those expressions, including your own and those of the Assembly, which I will convey tomorrow to the, to the different families as I meet them. Dear President Cox, I called it in the United Parliament, the members of the Parliamentary Assembly. I am very delighted to have the opportunity uh, to speak to you. I want to express my appreciation uh, for the opportunity during the Irish Presidency of the Committee of Ministers to be able to speak to you. I very much was pleased to meet both the President and the Secretary-General recently in Dublin. Uh, I think that was on the occasion where, again, under the auspice of the Irish Presidency, a very important seminar took place uh, on the on very much dealing with the violence against women, which is a priority uh, of the Irish Presidency of the Council of, of Europe. And it ended with the Dublin Declaration, which was very important. Again, I think that under the Presidency, there has been a very important seminar on the effectiveness of the Council of Europe at the Human Rights Centre of Galway University, under the title Lighting the Shade, Effective Application of the European Convention on Human Rights in Areas of Conflict in Europe, and that was very valuable. It is just seven years since I had the honour of addressing members of the Parliamentary Assembly before. That was a time of grave geopolitical fractures, but it was too, I have to say, a moment of the brightest hope. Agreements had been reached in New York and Paris that year on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and COP21 provided us with a model for the building of a sustainable future for humanity and for our planet. I address you today when we are challenged not to allow the shadows under which we are currently living to defeat what are and remain our best hopes, agreements which have an intergenerational support, particularly among young people. Those agreements are built on foundations that include the crucial importance of multilateralism, a multilateralism which is at the heart of the values on which all of our global institutions are based, including the Council of Europe and the United Nations. Multilateralism is today under extreme pressure, we might even say in crisis, with adherence to its values very fragile, indeed the killing of civilians, which you have mentioned, President, is an indication of that. In such moments, I believe that we must reflect on what multilateralism demands of us and what should inform it. Perhaps, if we are to recover it, 
If we are to have genuine multilateralism, then we must be willing to have a fully participative discussion on the universality of human rights. And this is not assisted by any hubris. It requires dispelling the notion that human rights are a uniquely European invention. We must recognize that for many people throughout the world, their experience of European intervention in their lives has been far from positive, indeed involved at the suppression of human rights. The sources of human rights are much more diverse than the valuable European rationalist sources might suggest. If we are to achieve an effective, universally supported system of multilateralism, we must recognize that there have been many different efforts a transcendence towards rights in human history, and many codifications of rights. I think, for instance, of the codes of Hammurabi in Mesopotamia in 1750 BC, codes which have served as a model for establishing justice in many cultures and have influenced laws established by Hebrew scribes, including those in the Book of Exodus. That admonition having been acknowledged, we can be proud of what was achieved by enlightened minds in Europe. In this context, the Council of Europe's great achievements of the European Convention on Human Rights, the European Court of Human Rights, and the European Social Charter. But, and these are best seen as part of a much longer, deeper historical instinct across all human civilizations to establish and respect fundamental rights in a manner which might apply across our different cultures. This wider vision, one beyond any hubris, is important if we are to speak authentically to people across all parts of the world on what are the common values which we might share to enable a wider vision of how our global future can be managed sustainably and now urgently in response to climate change and its consequences. The Council of Europe, this distinguished institution to which we owe so much debt for its role in Europe's moral and cultural reconstruction after the devastation of World War II, has provided an essential legal framework for the building of peaceful societies. It's highlighting of the fundamental principle of pluralist democracy, respect for human rights and the rule of law, as well as its setting of standards in human rights through the European Convention on Human Rights system in particular, have been key achievements confirming the common goal of a freer, more tolerant and just society in Europe. The objective of peace, I'm proud to say, was an Irish contribution to the Charter in 1949. Only yesterday did we mark the International Day against the death penalty. Now 37 years since Protocol Number 6 to the Convention, which abolished the death penalty in peacetime, entered into force. The Convention's framework, which we must consciously and proactively nurture as an indispensable component of the architecture of stability, peace and trust, built on this continent over the decades, is a legacy and a resource of profound ethical significance. One of the great benefits of the Council of Europe is its wider membership than that of the European Union. Europe is not best described as a bloc. 
the Council of Europe demonstrates the importance of reaching out to our shared responsibilities, to social, economic and ecological rights that can offer cohesion, fulfilment and sustainability. There are, however, may I suggest some basic rights which have been neglected in the global and regional discourse. I may give the example of freedom from hunger. Surely the most important right which any of us must have is the right to be free from starvation, and undoubtedly the highest security threat facing us is hunger. Yet today we find ourselves once more in the position of another grave hunger crisis, one of cataclysmic proportions. We see horrific, preventable scenes of famine and severe malnutrition across the Horn of Africa, a region that has endured devastating hunger three times in three decades, and that is responsible for zero, for 0.024 of emissions, suffering the most and the least responsible. On the previous two occasions, the world said, when details of the famine were reported to the United Nations by Mary Robinson, that we as a global, but that we must never happen again. For we as a global community have the capacity to anticipate and prevent regional and global famines, giving meaning to the phrase, never again. Yes, it is in relation to global hunger and the threat of famine, it is important that we reach all the humanitarian targets that are needed immediately, which we have agreed in order to tackle the shortages and save lives. This, however, is insufficient. We need to look at the structural factors contributing to food insecurity and to do so from a rights-based perspective, dealing with issues such as debt, 29 of the countries on the edge of collapse into debt, 16% on servicing debt, and 6% perhaps on public health. We must address monopolistic control of production and distribution of staples and food, for food insecurity is contributing to and exacerbating conflict. It is a moral choice between tolerating monopolistic economics at international level and supporting the right to survive. Our moral, I suggest, must address issues of sufficiency in a different and sustainable way. In relation to what we have just heard this morning, over the weekend and for a while now, there must be no impunity in any circumstances for breaches of international and humanitarian law. Ours and the Council's purpose must be to achieve in our democratic in our democracies, conditions of peace. If we enter into and accept a time where it is impossible to talk of the aspiration to peace, then the Council of Europe, and indeed us all, will have failed. I do think multilateralism is the principle we rightly invoke as an alternative to unbridled multilateralism. But it is a principle which must be tested for institutional adequacy. The Council of Europe has achieved much in its history, but cannot afford to be complacent about the challenges that remain ahead. It is appropriate, I suggest, to ask if the 
architecture which is available in current diplomacy can deliver on the original aims of the Council of Europe or indeed of the Charter of the United Nations. It is a painful reality that the architecture and institutions underpinning multilateralism have proved to be fragile, weak, and I have to say occasionally not fit for purpose. If we can identify shortcomings, should we not then press for reform? Just as given its dysfunctional consequences, we cannot continue to have five permanent members with a veto on the United Nations Security Council, continue to prevent and obstruct the consensus of the General Assembly of the United Nations, the Council of Europe too, must be willing to look at its architecture, the architecture necessary for it effectively tackling, such as how it communicates with the European street. In this context, I welcome the guidance which the very eminent members of the high-level reflection group chaired by my predecessor as President of Ireland, Mary Robinson, has suggested on the future of the Council. I strongly support its 30 recommendations across five themes. And so too is what is very valuable is the work of the Parliamentary Assembly's Ad Hoc Committee, chaired by Senator Fiona Lachlan, on the proposals for a fourth summit and discussion on governance and the future, future of governance in the Council of Europe. I think the Council of Europe has played a critical role in the encouragement it has offered to us in Ireland and the hope it offered. Maura Mockanty, one of our state's first female diplomats and the first woman to serve as permanent representative of Strasbourg, described the Council of Europe as a stage in international progress unimaginable before the last war. Again, Sean McBride, person who identified strengths and weaknesses to the Council from the very beginning, said, it is, in my view, one of the most important and constructive developments that have taken place in Europe. Unlike many other attempts at world organisation, it relies rather on moral, ethical, social and economic forces than upon military measures. Both Mark Antti and McBride recognised the importance of the European Convention on Human Rights and the crucial role which its commission and court would play in setting standards. Despite the moral authority of its legal institutions, we live in a world where the legitimacy of both the European Court of Human Rights and the Convention on Human Rights continues to be undermined. Let me take this occasion to state Ireland's view very clearly the European Convention on Human Rights must remain the cornerstone of human rights protection across Europe. To those who suggest that there is some tension between the principles of parliamentary democracy and the international protection of human rights, I respond unequivocally that parliaments flourish in an environment where rights are vindicated, upheld and promoted, not where they are delayed, judged or even rejected. The reality of human rights, of course, extends ever further, and it is within the realm of social and economic rights that we in recent times have witnessed grave threats to security in by policies and decisions which were far removed from the values of the European Social Charter. That landmark document that affirms how human flourishing entails the effective enjoyment of social rights 
as well as civil and political ones. There were times, and there will be again, when the Council of Europe is the institution that is called upon to fill a vacuum, make a response. The report of former Secretary General of the Council of Europe, Mr. Thorborg Jorn Jagland, the impact of the economic crisis and austerity measures on human rights in Europe was such a moment. His report is a damning indictment of austerity policies that were forced upon the citizenry of Europe without consideration as to human consequences in order to maintain an under-regulated European banking sector, an approach that had serious implications for human rights. His report concluded, people's rights are threatened by the impact of the economic crisis and growing inequalities. European societies have suffered the effects of the recent economic crisis, which has deeply affected social cohesion in many member states and which may eventually threaten both the rule of law and democracy. Any widening gap between principles of the Council of Europe and the European Union, its courts and its members' policy, must be seen for the threat that they are to the rules and effective vindication of human rights. This paradigm that was imposed that trumped human rights contradicted everything in the spirit of the Council of Europe, and particularly the values that were expressed in the European Social Charter. We must ask why the Charter was not invoked when social welfare was being cut and public services slashed across Europe in the name of austerity more than a decade ago. The crisis of legitimacy and competence on economic and fiscal matters, a crisis which has fueled the democratic crisis we continue to see unfolding, not just in Europe but around the world, has precipitated the great loss of trust now manifesting itself. Seven years ago, I said as a parliamentarian, parliamentarians must recover their ground. Parliamentarians are accountable. Yet the OECD informs us from their research that only 40% of European citizens trust their national governments and even a lower percentage reported among poor and younger citizens. There can be little doubt that social media is a key driver of this declining trust with its capacity to spread misinformation. But I believe that this alarming trend, which points to an ongoing democratic crisis in Europe, has been fueled by the continuing failure to critically acknowledge the consequence of reliance on a narrow economic paradigm that has resisted regulation, facilitated monopolistic tendencies, and has widened inequality, that has advocated austerity policies that have proven to be ruinous to social cohesion, that has been facilitated by an institutional inertia, something that is inflamed citizen cynicism. Achieving a vibrant democracy requires that we engage citizens meaningfully, inclusively, comprehensively in an understanding and commitment to human rights, a literacy of human rights. That is why I would like to see associations of the Council of Europe in every state, associations of supporting the United Nations, delivering the, de the debate and the options and the discussion to the street. We need to anticipate challenges, 
before they become crises, and indeed before they become disasters, and use all of the tools available traditionally and currently to us. How remarkable it is that in recent times, we, given our European intellectual heritage, have enabled an eclectic philosophy to test our assumptions, and indeed anthropology, to inform us on diversity and difference. These disciplines have had the potential to offer us so much to our present difficulties and circumstances, and understanding and anticipating the crisis of our contemporary times, including those sourced in ethnic, linguistic, or historical basis. I do put forward today the case for a return to the use of such tools as anthropology as a means of promoting a deeper understanding of diversity and cultural difference, and indeed anticipating, as I have said, potential conflicts. Concentration of corporate power, the growing realm of the unaccountable, and private isolation and alienation go together. We need to defend the public world, including the space of discourse and access, be able to speak and listen to each other in conditions of respect and discourse courtesy. As public sector broadcasting has increasingly disappeared or become unregulated, we have seen an erosion of public accountability in the media. Likewise, the failure to establish any effective form of regulation over misinformation and abuse on social media has created a further lack of accountability in public commentary. In tandem with these trends, we continue to see a further monopolization of media and social media companies. We see and are allowing an increasing concentration of ownership in key digital and media companies, and indeed in a similar way as to how we experienced the dangerous consequences of monopolization in the production and distribution of essentials such as grain and fertilizers, we now see it in the media. We need to seriously reflect, I suggest, on the consequences of unregulated control of the spaces for public comment by a very small number of owners Owners who, by not accepting responsibility or regulation, are facilitating a culture of unaccountable comment far outside the normal boundaries or restraint of political and social commentary. What are we witnessing in Ukraine following the illegal and immoral invasion by its powerful neighbor is an imperialist action. It represents a failure on so many levels. It is fundamentally also the consequence of a failure of democracy. When Russia was admitted as a member of the Council of Europe in 1996, the path chosen was one of a journey to democracy. It is a path that is contradicted by all of the recent events with their awful human consequences, for which, as I have said, there must be no impunity. The response of the Council of Europe was understandable in excluding Russia as a member. However, that does not nor should it mean a permanent exclusion from the Council of Europe, or of hope that the Russian population of 144 million people, along with all the other peoples, will not return again to enjoy the necessary protection of the European system of human rights protection. There must not be, I repeat, any impunity. In order to rebuild peace, the response of the Council must be, while reaffirming its founding principles, one that reinforces the strength and efficacy of the instruments available to it. 
the egregious breaches of the European Convention on Human Rights being witnessed at present, the significant political, financial and practical challenges this situation has brought to the Council of Europe creates an opportunity to progress issues which may have been held in abeyance or stasis for some time, an opportunity the Council of Europe to assert a renewed commitments to its values. Yes, the first challenge we face as Assembly members are acutely, are what you are so aware, I know, from my meetings with the Secretary General and President, is how to end the appalling return of our continent to war, of an arms race as the outcome, creating and deepening grave geopolitical fractures that carry disastrous human consequences. The challenge of upholding human rights and the rule of law, while upholding and promoting democracy, must always be a core raison d'etre of the Council. This requires that there must be, as I have said, no impunity for human rights violations. However, to do this effectively, we need to set out a longer-term vision of the Council's role in a post-conflict Europe and how that role might fit within the wider multilateral and institutional architecture. We should revert to the Council's fundamental strengths in rebuilding peace, notably the bedrock that is the European Convention on Human Rights. It must be now be reinvoked, extended, bolstered, and reasserted and resourced, become part of the discourse of the European street. In doing this, I firmly believe that we must focus on the indivisibility of human rights on all their dimensions. We need to commit to what might be a wider definition of comprehensive security in Europe, and thus constitute a European step towards a universal human rights-based approach to security, a security that includes the rights to live free from food insecurity, and which includes all of the rights of participation. The universality of human rights is based on the recognition, after all, of the common humanity of all. This principle, our common humanity in all its dimensions, must be our bedrock. Any review of the Convention framework, I think, must incorporate additional basic human rights, such as the right to a clean environment, which is linked to the right to be free from hunger. It is a reality that both climate change and hunger are driving conflict. We have currently, I think, 64 conflicts on our planet, and will continue to drive future conflicts. Responding to climate change and its consequences, has slipped down the rank of prioritised global policy issues over the course of the pandemic and the war, and it has done so at our peril. An under-recognised strength of the Council of Europe has been its emphasis on the role of culture in nurturing democracy, for us Irish, a nation attached to the preservation of an ancient Gaelic language once proscribed, the adoption of the Convention for the Protection of National Minorities is just one example. It was an important step towards the recognition of cultural rights throughout Europe. And while I'm proud to say that from the beginning, Ireland was among the first to acknowledge the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights, we must acknowledge that for us and all members, there is also the test of efficacy in delivering remedies and adequacy of response. As of January 2022, dear friends, 
47% of the leading judgments handed down by the court over the past 10 years are still pending implementation. There are 1,300 leading judgments pending overall. This is addressed by the distinguished group that you will be discussing. For example, more needs to be done in my own country with regard to the protection of minority groups, in particular travellers. In its most recent assessment, 2021, the European Commission Against Racism and Intolerance, within the ambit of the Framework Convention on National Minorities, concluded there is still a substantial shortfall in the provision of accommodation for travellers. Many traveller sites are in an inadequate condition. Criminal justice legislation, housing, provides for inadequate safeguards for travellers threatened with eviction, and evictions are carried out in practice without the necessary safeguards. And this is not about governments only. This is about publics accepting rights and the rights of minorities. These findings indicate the distance that we in Ireland still have to travel on the issue of traveller equality and full participation in Irish society. What our publics require now is not just acceptance of recommendations of the Commission or decisions of the court, but better effectiveness of resolution and remedy. The failure to remove the source of the original complaints is, after all, to undermine the legitimacy of the Council of Europe's architecture. The European Court of Human Rights, which I will visit later today, played a pivotal role in advancing LGTBI rights in my own country, Ireland. This is epitomised in the case Norris versus Ireland in 1988. David Norris is a friend of mine in which Irish Senator David Norris successfully charged that Ireland's criminalisation of certain homosexual acts was in breach of Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. This case marked the turning point for LGBT rights in Ireland and would go on to be lead to the introduction of same-sex marriage legislation in 2015. But it had to come to Europe, having been, in fact, unsuccessful in the domestic led in courts. While significant strides have been made in that important area of human rights in recent decades, they are not uniformly in place across our union. Neither is the provision and legal response to violence against women. I am pleased that both Ukraine and the United Kingdom recently became the 36th and 37th states respectively to ratify the Council of Europe's Istanbul Convention, recognising as it does violence against women as a fundamental violation of human rights. Turning nearer to home, the European Convention on Human Rights is essential to the effective functioning of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement in Ireland, which has brought peace on our island. The unique circumstances of Northern Ireland and the fundamental portus of the human rights provisions of that agreement require an approach that ensures the Convention continues to be fully implemented in Northern Ireland, regardless of Britain's exiting the Union. Progress on post-conflict legacies in Northern Ireland is crucial in order to meet the legitimate needs and expectations of victims and survivors, to uphold the rule of law, and to contribute to broader societal reconciliation as an integral part of the peace process. And victims from all sides 
are in agreement that granting impunity to those guilty of crimes is simply not acceptable. The proposed summit meeting of the Council, which I support, I think it's, which I think the, working, the intellectual group suggested, can provide a unique opportunity for leaders to recommit to the Council's first principles and set a longer-term vision for the organisation. In doing so, all member states must reaffirm their commitment to the principles and values of New Europe as enshrined in the statute and to the implementation of the rights and freedoms. I personally think that not only in Europe, but really a movement to try and establish, if you like, basic rights, uh, in fact, uh, basic rights in the basic essentials of life would be such an important new development. Universal basic rights. I think this requires to the unconditional obligation of the contracting parties to the Convention to abide by the final judgments of the European Court of Human Rights. Speaking of the Court of Human Rights, may I take this opportunity to pay tribute for his work at the Court of its outgoing President, Robert Spano, and to warmly wish every success, Gokragas Banakt, to his president-elect, Shifra O'Leary, the court's first Irish, first female president. The Council of Europe's system of human rights protection is explicitly linked to the maintenance and support of democracy. This key point is emphasised in the 2001 report of the Evaluation Group on the European Court of Human Rights, which states that Democracy lies at the heart of guarantees protected by the Convention. It upholds pluralist democracy by securing core principles. It promotes the rule of law, which provides the essential framework for effective political democracy. And if Europe is to fulfil or recapture the vision of its founding fathers, then the Europe we build must be founded on respect for basic human rights, including economic and social rights and respect for the rights of minorities, migrants and refugees. If we allow these rights to be dil diluted by the rhetoric of prejudice and fear, we risk undermining the moral legitimacy of our various positions on the world stage. This in turn will weaken and perhaps is already weakening our influence and capacity to act in response to the very real threats to these values. So as to our future Council of Europe, a key task will be the optimal calibration, too, of the interwoven relationship between the trinity of council structures, that is to say the Committee of Ministers, the Parliamentary Assembly, and the Secretary-General's Office, to ensure the effective delivery of human rights. This relationship was identified by Sean McBride in the earlier years of the Council as potentially problematic. It is not quite resolved in a satisfactory, agreed way yet. The Council's unique range of institutions, standards and tools must be better deployed to improve human rights, rule of law and democratic conditions in any affected region. For example, we must significantly enhance opportunities for civil society, human rights defenders, journalists, academia, and others to engage and cooperate directly, regularly, and meaningfully with the Council of Europe's statutory and non-statutory actors on issues relating to human rights protection in areas of conflict and contestation. It is important at a time of deep conflict which we're experiencing to refer, as I have said, to the value of culture and to recall what we share in it, there are deep historical and connections between us all. 
for example, even between the peoples of Russia and the peoples of Europe, ones that can serve as a basis for future contacts and dialogues with Russia in better times. We must remain open to such a cultural dialogue. This is a moment, I suggest, dear friends, for the Council of Europe's Parliamentary Assembly members to engage with vigour in the public space on behalf of human rights, human rights literacy, within their parliaments, between their parliaments and publics. It is not a moment for yielding in any sense to the intimidations of any new populisms or ancient hatreds based on fear. It is a time to make the case for solidarity, protection and possibilities. European citizens and those who have joined us and those who are joining us, will join us, must share a belief in a moral Europe that confronts shared challenges together in an open, inclusive, equitable form of multilateral engagement. Such a Europe must be open to the full diversity of the planet we share and its vulnerabilities and its differences in efforts at transcendence and achieving sustainability and its responsibility to future generations for biodiversity. So let us work together to give effect to this aspiration with authenticity, become indeed the conscience of Europe that the Council's principles espouse, one with a moral weight born, yes, of often painful experience, but one too which can offer a beacon of hope for an emancipatory future, not only for all the citizens of Europe, but for our world. Thank you. Thank you.